0: what is up you guys welcome to the balling out show this is your host Rashio Patnala. i'm super pumped for today's episode we're going to be covering everything from neuroscience along with overall mental well-being today's guest is emily emily mcdonald is a current phd student at the university of arizona she is studying neuroscience her work primarily focuses on addiction along with studying neuroscience she puts out neuroscience related content on social media emily how are you doing today
1: i am great how are you doing
0: i'm doing good i'm glad that we were able to make this happen hopefully yeah, it's I not could. too yes hopefully it's not too early for you i know arizona yeah. i
1: was up at like 6 a.m to work out and then meditate and then now i'm here so i have my morning routine that i gotta get done so i've been up for a while
0: that's very cool so you know neuroscience and overall mental well-being is just a topic i'm super passionate about and i think it's very i think a calm mind is the ultimate superpower today's world you know where we have immediate feedback loops or just quick dopamine hits i'm Mm -hmm. very curious kind of you know how'd you get started along your journey
1: um how did i get started along my journey well i will say that it was about two years ago and i started to just i literally just started meditating because I came across it and I was like this seems cool I want to try and I just made it like a thing before I would start studying so I would meditate before I started studying and then I also got really into Andrew Huberman's podcast who is a neurobiologist at Stanford and he just teaches all about like that's why I first heard about go outside and get sunlight in your eyes in the morning so important to do that for your mental health and for regulating your sleep wake cycle all sorts of things and I just started to learn about all of these things. And I started practicing them and they started really helping me. And they really started helping my mental health because I had mental health struggles growing up when I was in high school and undergrad for a little bit. So I started practicing these things and they made me feel so much better that I would just start posting on my Instagram story, on my Snapchat story. I would just start posting like little tips, like, hey guys, like go outside and get sunlight in your eyes in the morning. And all of a sudden people started messaging me off my stories like hey this stuff is really helping me like I started doing it and I feel so much better like can you keep posting more and I was like yeah I can do that and then it eventually just ended up turning into what I post now on social media with the mental health stuff um, and then addiction I don't know if you want me to answer that part too but that's like a whole different side of
0: it yes we will that's get to I- the addiction okay. part um okay. later on in the episode I'm kind of curious. So I know that Andrew Huberman recommends that like you wake up, get some sunlight, whether it be go outside or artificial light, you know, what's kind of the science behind that? And why is it beneficial as soon as we wake up?
1: Right. Um, So we're actually the most like we're the least sensitive to light when we first wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. So it is necessary to go outside and get sunlight in your eyes to activate A whole bunch of different things. So one is dopamine. You get a lot of dopamine in the morning if you go outside and get sunlight in your eyes, which is really important for motivation and drive throughout the day, because that's what dopamine is good for. And then another side of that is that it will start your, it regulates your circadian rhythm. So it starts a biological clock for melatonin release at night. So if you're having trouble falling asleep at night, going outside and getting sunlight in your eyes in the morning could also be really helpful for that because you'll get the melatonin release at night.
0: That's awesome. Do you kind of have a like morning routine that kind of keeps you calm and um, just overall leads to a healthy, productive life?
1: Yes, I have a morning routine that honestly, if I don't do it, it's I feel so scattered throughout the day. I'm a really big proponent of or like ambassador of intention so i wake up in the morning and i usually combine my exercise with my sunlight exposure so i usually just work out like outside or like this morning i went to the gym my apartment complex but i had to walk there so i'm outside in the morning to either work out or get to the gym and then i meditate after i work out i just find it easier for me to do that some people say like first thing when they wake up they meditate i just do it after Um, because I'm more clear-minded after I work out anyway and then I'll meditate for I try to for 20 minutes but you know sometimes we don't have that much time Um, and then after that I kind of just state my intentions for the day and if I don't have time to like sit there and do that I'll do that like as I'm getting ready or whenever I'm driving to lab or to class wherever I'm driving to in the morning I usually don't listen to music and I kind of just talk myself through my day and like what I want to get out of what I'm doing throughout the day. So if I'm like going to run an experiment, I'm like, it's my intention that I go do this experiment. It's going to go really well. And then I'm going to go to class. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to get a lot out of it. And basically just like putting my intentions out into the world of what I want to get out of my day. And I find that changes what I get out of my day so much, like being intentional with what mm-hmm. you do. It has a huge impact.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how you mentioned um, having intentions, kind of figuring out like why you're doing certain things, whether it be a project or just going about your day. Is there any kind of science behind, you know, setting intentions or kind of having a purpose almost?
1: Yeah. So I will say that, you know, it's pretty popular in like social media and stuff right now that we're driven by most of our days driven by subconscious brain activity. Like we're not and we're not going around like thinking about everything we're doing. A lot of what we do is on autopilot. And if you don't state intentionally what you want to get out, what you're looking for, like you your autopilot is just gonna overrun that. And like like when you're driving home and you kind of just forget the whole ride home, it's like that, but right. throughout your whole day. Like sometimes you would go throughout your whole day and be like, what even happened today? Like I don't even know. Um, but then another really important aspect of that is priming, and that's kind of like a psychological term, but priming your brain because you look for like where your focus goes, energy flows, and what you look for expands. So if like, if you're really wanting like a Jeep, all of a sudden, you're going to start seeing Jeeps everywhere driving around. It's that way everything so if you state in the morning like I want to have a beautiful day like for me I always am like it's my intention that I give love today to everyone that I see like I am it's my intention that I elevate the vibration of people around me and if, when you start to say that it just you that's what your brain your subconscious mind is looking for and looking to do throughout the day so you're also priming yourself to have a better day as well
0: that's so funny that you mentioned that you know if we don't necessarily set our intentions our brains kind of run on autopilot um are you familiar with the book uh thinking fast and slow by uh, daniel kahneman it's this um it's a book called thinking fast and slow by a guy named daniel kahneman um it's essentially a psychology and neuroscience book although i believe you'll have to double check or fact check me that he studied he won a noble uh Peace Prize in economics, but the book itself is about, um, it's essentially the science behind decision making, right? And it has all these experiments. And in the book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, he lays out that our brain kind of has two systems. So, system one, and I might be getting the two mixed up, but from what I remember, system one is our, you know, kind of unconscious. We kind of do things without being really. Um, aware, Mm -hmm. for instance, you wake up and then you just check your phone immediately, but you're not really realizing that you're doing that. And then, system two, on the other hand, is our more like logical, rational, like thinking through things kind of uh brain part of our system. And so, it's really interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of times our brain is on autopilot, and I think it's so important, um to kind of set intentions, you know, they don't need to be anything necessarily crazy big, but even as little as, you know, today I might maybe, you know, meditate for like two minutes or, you know, just write a page, you know, goes a long way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the whole checking your phone thing was like a thing I talked about on an Instagram live the other night and it was Uh just kind of Please don't do that. <laughs> like, please don't do that. I notice such a big difference in how I feel throughout the day if I check my phone versus when I don't. I had to like put a whole reminder up on a whiteboard next to my bed like do not look at your phone. I have a rule, I don't go on social media until after I've meditated in the morning.
0: Oh, nice. Nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I mean, your energy is so important <laughs> and going on social media, you're pretty much just opening yourself up Mm -hmm. to all of that. And also when you first wake up in the morning, your brain is in theta state. And that is your first opportunity to program your subconscious mind. If you go on your phone, when you first wake up in the morning, you are programming your subconscious mind with everything that other people are telling you. So it's like, you're Mm -hmm. literally putting yourself under the control or influence of everything that you see on social media in the morning
0: yes um do you know anything about you know kind of social media and its ability or effects on like people's focus because i see
1: definitely keep going what were you saying no i was just
0: asking um you know social media and its ability on people's focus like for instance you know if you go on TikTok or instagram immediately you hit refresh it's just a whole new feed and a whole new uh feedback loops right you see like 15 second videos and let's say you see that on for a span of like 30 minutes if you're trying to maybe write an article or read an article you know you kind of lose a bit of focus and i was just wondering you know how or what your thoughts on that were
1: yeah it's pretty bad for focus especially like with yeah. what you were saying everything now is curated to be short i run into that problem with my videos on social media i'm try, i try to like make everything under a minute because if it's any longer than that like you start to lose people's attention and that's yeah it's a dopamine thing you're getting constant dopamine hits going on social media i i personally don't go on social media really unless i'm like posting that's kind of the only time I would definitely say if you're someone that uses social media often, like take breaks from it. It's Mm -hmm. really important. Yeah, really important because yeah, you're getting constant dopamine hits and then you're building up like there's a tolerance to dopamine. So over time, you're not, that's why like over time, you're not even like getting that from social media anymore. And if you take breaks, it's kind of like, it's, kind of goes into the whole addiction thing that I studied too. Like over time, you not necessarily a tolerance to dopamine, but let's say your brain builds more receptors for dopamine. And so now you don't get that overflow of dopamine anymore because your brain can handle more of it. So taking breaks from that kind of stuff allows your brain to go back to a more of a baseline that it was before so that you it like things feel rewarding and good again.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some examples of you know, healthy ways to achieve dopamine and not necessarily artificial ways like uh checking your phone or quick hits of dopamine.
1: Yeah, so number one is going outside and getting sunlight in your eyes in the morning. That's like necessary. Um two, exercise. Exercise is great for increasing dopamine. Um another way to increase dopamine music, dancing, things like that. I like music especially. Mm-hmm. Um I actually did a video talking about how music that we know it feels so good to us because our brains are prediction machines. And so when your brain can correctly predict what's going to happen, you get dopamine. And so when we're listening to music that we know, we actually get more dopamine because our mm-hmm. brain is like correct, making correct predictions. Um
0: yeah, that's uh that's awesome that you mentioned music. Like I am a complete music head and like one of my favorite things to do, although I don't do it consistently, is just waking up and starting my day just like playing some music on a speaker. Um, I just find that's just sets a mood for the overall day. Um, is there any science behind that or kind of how music affects our, you know, brain or overall well being?
1: Yeah. Music is special. Music is so special. I personally love talking about like how frequencies affect our brain and things like that. like binaural beats for studying, like music is special. It can do so many different things, but um, yeah. I mean, especially if you're listening to it in the morning, like I said before, like your brain is most susceptible to being changed and altered and you are setting, you're priming your day with your music. So if you're listening to like upbeat music that gets you in a good mood, like you're most likely going to have a way better day than if you were starting out with listening to like really sad music. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I, I find m- music so interesting just because the way that the neuroscience of the auditory system works, it's literally organized by frequency. And so you are like just activating certain pathways depending on the frequencies you're hearing and then that in combination with how music makes you feel so it ties in the emotion and so you're getting dopamine from you're getting a lot of dopamine from music especially if you like it
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome um we'll keep the conversation moving forward but just to like circle back on this or put a cap on this entire um topic of morning routines and whatnot if, for the people who are listening if you had to recommend like a pragmatic approach to their mornings like what would you recommend, like? as soon as you wake up do this then that or kind of like what would you recommend for people who just overall want to increase their well-being and just be you know more happy or productive or what have you
1: um i would say number 1 is to do something that you can do every day like mm-hmm. don't try to don't try to like make a whole, like, I'm going to meditate for 30 minutes and work out and do all these things. If you're not, if you don't like think that you're going to be able to do that every single day, don't, make that your morning routine, because the most important thing about a morning routine is that it is a routine and that you do it every day. Cause when it's habit, it's just going to be much more beneficial to you. And if like, there comes a day where you can't do all of those things, then it throws off your whole day. So do something that you can like feasibly handle every morning. And then I would say like sunlight in, in your eyes, do something mindful, like some type of mindfulness practice. If it's not meditation, like going for a walk or like I said, for a while, like now I'm much more intentional. So I just kind of like throughout my day, like put my intentions out there. But for a while, when I was first starting doing this, I would write down five intentions of the day, just like five things Mm -hmm. that I want to get out of my day. Um, yeah, but just doing something that you feel that you can actually handle, but mind, body, soul, those three things, if you can tie that into a morning routine, you're having a great day.
0: No, that's awesome. Um, one thing I've been curious about that I learned recently was that a lot of the foods we eat kind of affect our overall mood, whether it be, um, you know, feeling less anxious or depressed or whatever, have you, um, you know, kind of, do you know anything about that? And like, kind of how the foods we eat, is there a specific diet that helps to lead, whether it be, you know, having more focus and attention or just overall being more calm. Um, kind of like what's, what's your, what's, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Totally. Diet is so important. They say that your gut is your second brain, but I disagree. I think it's your first brain. Really? Yeah. And we talked about that in my neuro class too. We were like, no, the gut is your first brain. Like the majority of your serotonin is produced in your gut. Um, probiotics, I find extremely important. Like if you're not like eating some type of probiotics, like taking a supplement every day, it's like, I don't want to say it's necessary, but like helpful, very helpful. Like mm-hmm. if someone comes to me saying that they have anxiety, one of the first things I'll ask them is like, are you taking a daily probiotic mm-hmm. and if not like try it? Because I think that could really help. But, um, going from like for focus and attention, yes, a hundred percent. I don't think that there's a certain type of diet that's best for everyone. I think it depends on the person. And I think it also changes over time, depending on what you're going for, what you want, what you need, but for focus and intention carbs, you gotta like cut them out, like not cut them out, but, Mm -hmm. but carbs are like, they put your body into a rest and digest state where you get an increase in serotonin, that and just being full in general. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to be more productive throughout the day, it would be, it makes more sense to eat smaller meals, snacks throughout the day than it does to eat a big meal. Because when you're full and when you eat like a lot of carbs, you get an increase in serotonin, serotonin rest and digest comfort. And then like that serotonin kind of like off-balances is not So if you're getting like more serotonin, then you're just trying to chill on the couch. You're not trying to do work or focus. So if you want to improve your focus, stay less full, stay a little hungry, honestly, is what they say. Like for me personally, yeah, like a little bit hungry. And, um, I don't really eat carbs unless it's like nighttime because carbs make you tired. Um, that's no, hundred percent. Yeah. Um,
0: I've noticed even, you know, after eating lunch, right? If I get a bowl or something that has a lot of rice or something, you know, you'll I feel a bit more lethargic versus, you know, eating something a bit more light, like a salad.
1: Yeah. Um, another thing that is really can be really helpful is chugging water. So mm-hmm. I always kind of realize when I'm like really hydrated, I just have better focus. But if you chug water, like you kind of have to go pee a little bit. Mm -hmm. When your bladder is full, when the skin and your bladder stretches, there's actually a neuron that runs from not like, I don't know if it's a singular neuron, but there are connections that run from your your bladder to your brainstem. And it actually, when your bladder, the skin starts to stretch, it increases synthesis of norepinephrine and adrenaline, which like is the reason why if you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you wake up. Because it literally wakes you up and increases focus and alertness when you have to go to the bathroom. So chugging water and staying really hydrated is actually like a hack to increasing effort and adrenaline to increase your focus.
0: Right. I know the conventional um, recommendation is eight ounces or eight glasses of water a day. Um, Does that ring true? Or is it kind of, you know, how much water... I drink
1: 100%. a gallon of water a day. Oh, wow. So that's like 128 ounces. That's like, uh huh. Oh, that's a lot. It's a lot more than, because yeah, eight glasses of water is only like 64 ounces.
0: Yeah. It's a little, mm,
1: yeah, not, I would uh, say probably more than that. Uh-huh. Definitely. Especially if you're exercising, because they say you should be drinking like, and don't quote me on this. I don't know, but it's just like an, a, eight ounces per what? hour or 30 minutes that you're exercising as well also i live in the desert so it's like i need i feel like that gallon is really actually necessary yeah
0: yeah um so for the people who are listening you know if they want to overall like eat are there specific foods that you recommend that they eat like whether it be like fruits or vegetables to for overall um cognitive improvement and function.
1: Yeah, um, blueberries are known to be really good for your brain, uh, healthy fats like avocados and like coconut oil is good too. MCT oil is good because it improves your brain's ability to absorb nutrients, um, things with antioxidants and yeah, of course, vegetables. Um, I'm a, like a big, I am vegetables and fruits and foods that are not processed so processed foods are just actually really bad for you um there's a saying that i really like that longer the shelf life of food the shorter your life
0: that's Uh, actually pretty good i really like that
1: yeah 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 (laughs) and i think it's probably pretty true um especially with the processed foods and stuff with people that are struggling with focus um processed foods and refined sugars and things like that can just be really detrimental to your ability to focus and your mental health too Mm -hmm. it affects your gut which then affects your serotonin Mm -hmm. levels and just a whole bunch of things so
0: Mm -hmm. yeah for you know anybody who's looking to kind of might not have the best diet or you know, is there like a certain time period that it takes for you to clean your gut like for instance like 30 days or you know like a week?
1: Yeah, that I'm not sure. I am not sure about that. Uh-huh. Um I think a lot of cleanses are like a week or so, but yeah, yeah. no, I'm not like a gut expert. So yeah. I'm unsure about that.
0: <laughs> no, you're good. Um there what you mentioned that like you take a daily probiotic, you know, is this like through the form of like a pill or kind of, uh, a drink or kind of, you know, do you have a recommended, um, supplement that you take?
1: Um, yeah, there's one that I take and it's like physician's formula mm. mood plus, but honestly, I haven't looked at the ingredients to that one recently. So like, don't run out and buy it if it's got like sunflower oil or something in it. Cause I'm trying to stay away from that. Um, just because it can off balance your omega threes and I'm trying to increase omega threes as well. That's really good for another thing. That's really good for your brain is omega threes. Um, but I used to drink kombucha fermented foods are a good source of probiotics and like yogurt things like that. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Um, we'll keep the conversation moving. So I'm curious about you know, why, why addiction, you know, what makes you um, passionate about that kind of why you wanted to get into that, um, with your PhD and specialize in addiction.
1: Yeah. Um, addiction is okay. So actually I was an undergrad at UT and Mm -hmm. I was a neuroscience major, and I was doing, I was in a research, I worked and did human research actually, when I was an undergrad and I studied learning and memory and kids using fMRI, and I loved I made I fell in love with research I really loved it, but I always kind of knew like, this isn't exactly like where I want to go with research, although I really liked doing research and I took a class called the neurobiology of addiction in undergrad, and I, we read a paper about why the current treatments don't work for nicotine addiction. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of or, or like like why they don't work for the majority of people, basically. And I was kind of just like, well, why is no one doing this? Like now I know there are people looking into it. But I was just like, I can do better. So I came up with like a whole idea, a plan of a project that I wanted to pursue. And I was like, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? How am I going to discover new treatments to prevent relapse to addiction? And I was like, well, I got to go to grad school and get my PhD in neuroscience. So I can do my own research and figure this out. So that's kind of what I decided I wanted to do like six months before like applications were due. So I yeah. immediately was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I looked into neuro PhD programs and ended up here in Arizona in like the perfect lab studying exactly what I said I wanted to study when, when I was applying. So it's come full circle. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. So ultimately your goal is to, um, study addiction and come up with ways on how to prevent relapse. Correct.
1: Yes, yes. Now
0: I'm curious, you know, um, is there a specific definition on, at least from a scientific approach on what constitutes an individual as addictive or kind of like, I guess, what is the scientific definition of addiction or an addictive person per se?
1: Yeah, so there's a whole list of criteria according to the DSM-5. Mm -hmm. that constitutes addiction there are I mean I am not even going to go down that list there's a lot of things including like wanting to pursue the drug and just taking the drug um even though there are negative consequences negative outcomes but I think probably the best way to describe addiction for from my point of view and like something that's easy to understand is basically when you first start doing a drug or you first start doing anything, you do it because it feels rewarding because it feels good. Like you Mm -hmm. like it. Um, but over time it, there's a shift where that first part is like, you're doing it for a positive outcome. And now there's a shift toward where now you're doing it to avoid the negative feelings that you have. So you feel either bad if you don't do it or, you know, you're in withdrawal. So now you need to take the drugs so that you don't have those side effects and cravings. And that's kind of doing it to avoid negative outcomes. So I would say that shift from where you're doing it for a positive effect to now you're doing it to avoid a negative effect. That's kind of where and addiction isn't necessarily a scientific term. It's actually dependence. So that's kind of where you move from mm. doing it for the reward to now you're dependent on
0: it. Right. Would you, you know, would you say that it's a, uh, it is this a question of nature or is it nurture, you know, um, people who have certain addictions. Um, right. And I think, you know, they addiction is a very broad umbrella term right people can be addicted to drugs or people could be addicted to running right right um you know is it, is, you know is it nature versus nurture are there any like studies that kind of dived into that
1: yeah there are a lot of studies um I think one really cool one is like to get out I mean it's both to answer your mm-hmm. question quickly it's both like mm-hmm. there are genes that we have identified that are, It's passed down so if you have family members that are alcoholics you have a way higher chance of being an alcoholic Mm -hmm. that's that's nature but nurture there's a study where they put rats in um a paradigm where rats either live together and then they let them self-administer drug i think it was cocaine or something um and then there's rats that are housed alone and they have them self-administer cocaine the rats that are housed alone will become addicted to cocaine pretty quickly. The rats that are in the social context and have like social enrichment and a community, they're actually way less likely to become addicted to the drugs. So that's just one example of how your environment can play a really big role Um community can literally help you avoid becoming addicted to a drug. So it's both but your environment plays a big role, especially like who you are surrounded by.
0: Right. That's funny. You mentioned that. So ultimately you'd say, um, you know, I guess having good people around or, you know, um, strong social ties kind of helps to lead to an overall, um, better, like more healthy life. Right. I'm not saying that everybody has some sort of addictions, but you know, for those people who do have addictions, maybe if they have a good support system, you're saying that the studies help or show that yeah. you know, they that leads to less addictive tendencies.
1: Yeah. And I would say that's probably also a big reason why AA works so yeah. well for people is because you have community and you, you are surrounded by people. That also striving for the same goal that you, and that's really important. Obviously there are other things in nurture on the nurture side that are important, like traumas and things like that can mm-hmm. lead to people to become addicted to drugs because they are, you know, self-medicating or, you mm-hmm. know, there's tons of reasons for why people will start doing drugs. Um, but yeah, so I, it's definitely both, but your community just plays such a huge role of who you, you really are, who you surround yourself with.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, whenever you're studying um, addiction in your PhD classes, is it mainly um, drug addiction or any other sort of addictions?
1: Um, So we will touch other sorts of addictions. Um, It's mainly drug addiction and like the pharmacology of that and the neurobiology of that, because I'm also minoring in medical pharmacology. So I like... So I can learn like actually what all the drugs do to the brain and how all of that works. So I can better understand how to develop treatments. But the, we also will, it'll be like one lecture at the end of the class where we'll talk about other types of addictions. They are not nearly as detrimental for your brain because an addiction is only as like harmful to you as it is to your life. So like if you're addicted to running, like, is it bad for you really to be addicted to running it. Maybe if it's bad on your joints uh, over time, like maybe that's not good. And if you're doing it instead of like spending time with your family and your family is like starting to become upset with you, like maybe that's not good, but it's good for your health to work out every day. So how bad is it really? I think it just depends. Whereas, and like a, whereas like a gambling addiction that's probably bad because you're losing all your money
0: yeah and,
1: but you're not necessarily doing anything harmful to your brain by doing that right. you know what I mean? like you're harming your life whereas drug addiction you are harming your life and then you're also destroying your brain and the reward centers in your brain
0: mm-hmm. um I had a friend he wanted to ask a question um his question was what role does attention play in decision making and how do the underlying mechanisms and people with addiction differ from those without
1: for attention Is Yeah
0: that- so I guess he had two questions the first Okay,
1: okay one, yeah I'm trying to okay go yeah.
0: So the first one was what role does you know attention play in decision making and i guess we will get with to that um in a little bit but the second question that he had cuz it has to do with addiction is how do the underlying mechanisms in people with addiction kind of differ from those people without addiction
1: okay yeah there are a lot <laughs> that's <laughs> what i study um you can go so many different directions with this but i would say like there's the dopamine and the reward system so over time, we are, I have a whole car analogy that I kind of like to describe. So if you think about um, your brain normally, when you first do a drug or when you first, you know, I don't know, whatever you're addicted to, when you first do it, you're, you're in a parking lot with that just has way too, cars are dopamine and parking spots are like the receptors for dopamine in your brain. So when you first do the drug, you get an Overflow of dopamine. You have way too many cars in your parking lot. There's not enough parking spots. So all that extra dopamine is what makes you feel good. But over time, your brain learns and adapts, as with everything. So your brain just builds more parking spots. So now when you do the drug, there's enough parking spots for cars and there's no overflow. So you don't get that rewarding feeling. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what happens with dopamine. That and then there's can be alterations in the production of it. And then there's there's, that's just dopamine. There's tons of mechanisms like learning and memory. And we see, um, there's changes in brain structure with our rats that have done cocaine for months. They start to get holes in their brains. Um, you literally have like cell death, like neural cell death when you become addicted to drugs, at least. So, and then also you have like you're learning in memory centers because addiction also is a disease of learning and memory because you're learning, your brain is learning to associate everything with the drug that you're doing. And that's kind of the reason for why you crave something when you see a certain cue, when you go to a party or whatever, and you see someone juuling, and then you want to like, that's because your brain has learned to associate what that looks like with the feeling that you get and the dopamine. So that's why you get dopamine. And then over time, you actually stop getting dopamine with addiction. You kind of stop getting dopamine from the actual reward and you really get it from the cues because it's motivating you to go do it but then that's why after you do it you're like oh that really wasn't all that and then you want to do it again Mm -hmm. because you really start getting dopamine from it's to motivate you but it's not actually from the reward itself
0: right there's a book called atomic habits by a guy named james clear and it ultimately talks about how to break bad habits and build good ones and in it he mentions um there's four steps to a habit um cue craving and the reward i know that was three but um something along those lines and i yeah. remember oh no a cue a cue craving reward and then the response mm-hmm. that's what it was um but i think you know do you think like for instance um, people who are addicted to maybe vaping or smoking cigarettes, even if they, if they see somebody who outside, um, smoking a cigarette or get a, um, you know, waft of the cigarette smoke, they ultimately, does that light up, um, certain receptors in their brain to where they want to do it themselves?
1: Yeah. Um, that's an exact situation of how a cue.
0: Mm -hmm. induces
1: dopamine release which makes you craving because that's what craving is it's just dopamine um it's motivation to go do whatever your brain has learned to do and in that situation like your brain has especially with drugs because when you do drugs you get dopamine right and dopamine is super important for learning and memory So if you're you're, like to study and you tie like a reward to it or like you really like the music you're studying to, you're going to remember it a lot better than if you were bored studying, right? That's why whenever you're interested in something, it doesn't even feel like you have to pay attention that much because it's so easy and you just remember it. That's because you feel good and you have dopamine while you're learning. It's like that's super helpful in those situations. But then when it comes to drug addiction, then you have dopamine from the drugs, and your brain is learning really well that it likes those drugs. So it's learning to like, now your brain is a machine where it wants to help you continue to feel good. So it's like, oh, there's that drug that makes you feel good. Let me release some dopamine to make you want to go get it.
0: Right. And I think it kind of stems back to what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, setting an intention, because in the book, he says, if you have certain bad habits that you'd like to stop, um, ultimately becoming aware of that cue, right. Because that's the first step and then being like, okay. And then he mentions like, for instance, um, if you want to avoid doing a certain habit, replace it with doing something else. Right. So for instance, if somebody is a cigarette smoker and they get a cue, um, that they want to smoke cigarettes, maybe replace that by doing, um, I don't know, something like maybe like 10 pushups or something, but it ultimately stems down to kind of what you were talking about, about kind of being intentional or rather just being more cognizant and aware of like why it is that, you know, um, people are more inclined to doing certain things or certain habits
1: yeah, and like another um, way they put that is like noticing your triggers because that's yes. what they are, they're triggers. So like yeah. throughout your day, like identifying your triggers. And it's really funny because I've actually never read that book. I, I recently watched a like a whole long review on it because someone said that I should like read it. And it's funny because I actually made a video on how to like break a bad habit. And uh-huh. one of the things I said was that instead of focusing on the bad habit, you should completely redirect your attention to forming a new habit to replace the old one because Where your focus goes, energy flows. If you're focusing on breaking that bad habit, you're still thinking about the bad habit and that's not going to help you break the bad habit. So Mm -hmm. stop thinking about the habit that you're trying to get rid of and focus on a new habit that can replace the old one. So if I'm like trying to break the bad habit of sitting down and watching TV after I eat, then I should, instead of trying to like, just not do that, I should just create a new habit that I want to replace the old one. Like, Oh, I'm going to read instead of doing that. And now I'm building a new habit to replace the old one.
0: Yes, that's, uh, no, that's awesome. I think you should definitely check out that book. I think you would like it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's,
1: it, I really, I, whenever I was listening to the review on it and like the summary of it, uh, I was just kind of like listening to it. And it's not like a super neuroscience y book at all. Yeah. But like as I was, uh-huh. as I was listening to the thing, it's kind of just like, integrating all my neuroscience knowledge into it and why all of these things probably work and I was like oh that works because this and that and like he also talks in that book about like chunking things and like how putting making habit sequences is really helpful yes
0: Uh and that
1: kind of ties into Routine. And that's because, and that when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's because our brain mm-hmm. likes to use the least amount of energy possible. So, if, you, which is why, like, we have associative cues that make us like, oh, I see that, then I'm going to do that without even thinking. That's because our brain wants to prioritize what it uses energy towards. So, if it can group things into like one memory, it will do that. And it ends, mm-hmm. and then it will, because your brain wants to save everything to autopilot because it's already yeah. energy. And so, if you can make like a whole sequence of things, your brain is way more likely to save that whole sequence right. into autopilot.
0: No, that's funny because he does talk about, you know, kind of, yeah, stacking up like habits on top mm-hmm. of each other and trying to make the good habits um come to you easily. So I'm sure he must have researched some sort of neuroscience and along with other subjects and kind of put it in a way that's uh, easy and accessible for like, right. a-
1: like he doesn't talk about the neuroscience of it, uh-huh. but when I'm reading it, I'm like, this makes
0: sense because of all the neuroscience that I where it's rod from. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. very cool. Um, so the second question that my friend had was kind of what role does attention play in decision making? And kind of I guess and I'm just a big and to add on to that, I'm just curious of overall kind of the science of decision making and you know, um, are there any cognitive biases that are very common amongst just humans in general that we should be aware of or things along that nature?
1: Yeah, I would say, I mean, I'm not super, I think decision-making is a lot more like psychology than neuroscience. I'm not like super, like, I mean, I'm a little familiar, but I'm not super familiar with decision-making.
0: He did. He like, did study psychology, so that's probably why he was asking. Yeah,
1: that. <laughs> I'm like that's much more of something you should ask a psychologist. Oh, wow. But I will say, like, when it comes to the neuroscience of it, I mean, it all stems from like how you've probably primed your brain, and like, like you said, your focus and attention. So whatever, like, for me, I would say a lot of people choose their decisions, or sometimes they focus on avoiding a negative outcome. So they will, it's kind of based on fear almost. And I would say a lot of decisions people make is because of, you know, social norms or just what society has pressed on them. But I would say if you imagine, I really like this analogy is if you imagine your life as a highway and you are born on the highway to your purpose and all of the exits along the way are people saying things like, oh, you won't make any money doing that, or that's impossible, or like you should do this job because it's more realistic. And those are all the exits that you could possibly take. And those are all like excuses to not, but, but really like you are born on the highway. So if you just don't listen to what anybody else has to say and you follow, because you're born with the, the, the intuition to get to where you're meant to be. And if you follow that, you will end up at where you're meant to be. So remove fear from your decisions and listen to your intuition. And I think something really important is to meditate to tap into your intuition because mm-hmm. a lot of people will ask me like some of the best advice I gave someone was like, if nobody else existed, like, what would you do? Cause they were like, I can't decide where I should move, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, if no one else in the world existed, if no one's opinion mattered, it's like, they don't even exist. What would you do? And that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for decision-making, I mean, that's not really like any type of science, but I think it's really important when it comes to decision making to practice mindfulness tasks that will get you more in tune with yourself so that you can make the best decision for you
0: right um i love how you shared the highway analogy it almost seems like ultimately you could kind of simplify and say like almost trust your gut right
1: yeah yeah and um, and i i say that and i'm like well, what is your heart telling you to people and they're like well i don't know I can't tell. And I'm like, well, you need to start practicing listening to your intuition. Like I go on hikes where I don't put any maps or anything and I just go. And then I'm like, okay. And I turn around and I'm like, how do I get back to my car? And I will just kind of use my intuition and let myself like my inner self guide the way home. Um, back to my car. And it actually, like in the beginning, I literally almost was back. And then I literally checked Google maps because I wasn't sure. And I was like, if I would have just kept going, I would have made it. Cause I was like five minutes away from my car. So that kind of just really taught me like, listen to your intuition. And if you make a mistake, if you make a wrong decision, that's fine. A wrong decision is better than no decision. I think that's a really another important point to make about right is to make a decision like mm-hmm. don't sit don't sit and be like i can't decide make a decision because if it's the wrong one then at least you know to go the other direction but if you never make a decision then you'll just sit, be sitting there not knowing
0: right i think um you know as long as you're moving forward and kind of doing things or being decisive um you'll figure it out as you go rather right. than um kind of sitting around being still
1: yeah and you're not always gonna move forward right sometimes you make a decision and then it's the wrong decision and you take a step back but that's all part of life right yeah
0: yeah so um you know psychology versus neuroscience there's a bit of overlap both of them have different i guess concentrations within them kind of like what are the like broad distinctions between kind of psychology and neuroscience and like how do they enter lop together
1: yeah um my brother actually just asked me a question very similar to that I would say that um psychology is kind of the outward expression of neuroscience not Mm -hmm. not completely because psychology also ties in with like traumas and things that maybe you won't see in the brain but Mm -hmm. psychology is very much behavior and also mind like I'm not a psychologist so like psychologists will probably disagree with me on that but that's kind of just my view on it whereas neuroscience is a lot more like technical in in the fact that like we try to base everything off and there's lots of different branches to neuroscience so there's behavioral neuroscience where that is behavior and that is like the outward projection of what activity that we see in the brain so if we are having like for me, I actually worked in a neuropsych lab in undergrad, so we would scan people's brains, kids' brains, while they were doing a learning and memory task and how, and then we would compare that to the structure of the hippocampus and fMRI and see how, like, blood flow activity in certain areas of the hippocampus. So that's kind of, kind of tying in, like, psychology because we're looking at, like, their ability to learn to remember, remember things and how they separate that within times that we looked at and over throughout development so like five-year-old kids to 25-year-old people like how we learn to remember things how that changes over as we age that's kind of psychology but then the neuroscience of that was we scanned their brains and then we compared that the psychology output to okay now what's happening in the brain on more of like a functional level with blood flow and brain activity but neuroscience also has lots of branches. Like there's that, the behavioral neuroscience, but there's also like, um, molecular neuroscience. So that's kind of, I, and I kind of do all of it because that's what I'm interested in with addiction. It kind of ties all of it in, but with molecular neuroscience, you're looking at like the cell level, what's happening within the cell, like down to the different receptors, the proteins, the cap, like protein cascades, like exactly what's happening. And I think that's really important for understanding the bigger picture, because then you move into like systems neuroscience, where that's, um, how different brain structures work together, how different circuits work together, because you've got brain cells that are connected all throughout your brain. And so I, I'm looking at the prefrontal cortex in my study, which is an area really important for executive functioning. People, they see low blood flow in that area, people ADHD. So it's kind of like when you have lower blood flow to that area, you might be more impulsive. Um, and we see that prefrontal cortex activity is disrupted in addiction as well. So that's kind of more on like in in addiction, just in oh, all addiction. addictions because because prefrontal cortex is really important for impulse control. Right. So you can imagine that if disruption and activity in that area, you're going to be more impulsive, which is something that we see in addiction also mm-hmm. in people with ADHD.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, kind of do you know any ways to kind of increase um blood flow to the prefrontal cortex? So people aren't necessarily as impulsive.
1: Yeah. Meditation. Meditation
0: there we go. <laughs> Meditation,
1: there we go. meditation wow. and mindfulness activities. Like I really like, I don't take, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was younger and I took medication for mm-hmm. years. Um, and I stopped, like I started meditating and meditated not every day, but as often as I could now I meditate like every single day, but I'm like, I don't have to take meds anymore. So it's, it's that it works that well. Like if you can sit down and meditate and practice it and people say like, I can't meditate. And at first, yeah, you can't, because that's the whole point. Meditation's practice. And as you get better at it and you get better at sitting there and then you start to notice like, oh, I can control my thoughts right now. That's when, you know, like the meditation is working. And now when I sit and I'm reading something, I'm not like, what did I just, I just went through a whole paragraph and I have no idea what I just read.
0: Right. Um, now, you know, kind of walk me through your meditation approach. Like whenever you're meditating, are you kind of sitting and just kind of, um, you know, are you thinking or about a specific thing or kind of setting your intention or are you kind of letting your mind wander and kind of just observing, um, I guess your thoughts Or kind of like, is there, you know, is there like a black and white approach to go about it?
1: There are many, many different types Uh of meditation. Um, And I think it's whatever works best for you. I was watching a video of someone that's like pretty famous that they said this meditation cured their ADHD and he does kind of what I do now. So I'll explain that one. But I'll also say that um, when I first started meditating, I did guided meditations because I didn't know how to meditate. I didn't know what Mm -hmm. that was. So in the beginning, and I have a, a link to a YouTube playlist of all my favorite meditations in the, in my bio, my Instagram. So it's like a link in bio and it's all my meditations that I do. So if you want to start meditating, you can go there. We can add this to the uh, show notes. Oh, cool, cool. Uh-huh.
0: Um,
1: Yeah. So there, so guided meditations can be really helpful because they teach you kind of how, so I, you focus on your breath um, and basically just sit there, focus on your breathing and the, and it'll come in and tell you and it'll guide you and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, now at this point I just listen to like f- different frequency music um I lately I've been listening to like this Moses code frequency or whatever but I sit there focus on my breathing and then yeah, thoughts come up thoughts come up but the whole point is to see your thoughts and just let them go. Mm-hmm. Don't judge them don't interact with them don't keep thinking about them like if you see a thought if you have a thought, just let it go. Like, Oh, that's a thought. Like picture it as if it's a car driving by on a road or just like a cloud passing through. Like it is nothing more than that. It's just a thought that's passing through and let it pass through and let it go. And you just start and you practice not judging it and not judging your thoughts because thoughts are your, your cells firing in your brain. They are whatever's coming in. They're not you you're not your thoughts. You're not your feelings. You're not your emotions. You're the ones that can observe all of that. And, and doing these meditations really helps you see that because a lot of people, like one of my friends was telling me like, well, but I like, she'll have like a thought and it'll make her upset. And I'm like, this is why it's so important to meditate because if you sit and observe your thoughts and you realize you can observe them, then you realize you're really not your thoughts. And you just, as you can practice that more and more and just letting them go and not judging them, you'll start to judge yourself less. And then you'll also just gain way more control over your mind and where your focus is. And you'll have, you'll be able to focus on what you want to focus on rather than being distracted by your thoughts.
0: Right. Um, Would you say that, um, I guess my question is, you recommended that you meditate for 20 minutes a day. Um, you know, does is there a certain like time, or, you know, yeah, is there a certain time of the day that works best? Like whether it be in the mornings, middle of the day, the evenings, yeah. or you know, or I um, guess, it's, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So science shows 20 minutes is where you get the benefits at with meditation. 20. Um, obviously, if you can't do 20 minutes, like anything. Start with start with five minutes if you've never meditated before because you'll never do 20 minutes. Like that would just seem overwhelming for you. But yeah, so science also shows that meditation in the morning is best. And like for me, I would always do it like before I would start studying and things because it allows me to have the most focus. But another reason for that is because especially the type of meditations that I'm talking about, they actually activate your prefrontal cortex because you're using your prefrontal cortex to focus on not focusing on your thoughts, right? Like you're having to use your brain to control where your focus is going. And there's like other types, like you could focus on your breath. You could also have like what you were saying, like a mantra that you're repeating in your mind. Like you can have like whatever you want, like just something that you're focusing on the whole time um, that activates your prefrontal cortex. So if you do that before bed, they actually saw that you have trouble sleeping because you're increasing your brain activity and increasing focus and attention when you do these meditations. And so doing that at nighttime can actually disrupt your ability to sleep. So it was best to do it in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, another question that I wanted to ask you was, um, for those of for those that are listening, you know, kind of what are the best ways to reduce or alleviate anxiety?
1: Um so I think a and obviously not the only reason, there's a lot of reasons for anxiety, but a big reason for anxiety is the fact that we're all sitting in front of screens and staring at um our phones all day because there's this, it's called, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like the close eye focus effect. But when your eyes are focused on a point right in front of you, like your phone screen or your computer screen, um, your brain is releasing like the neurochemicals responsible for focus and attention. Because if you're looking at something really close to you, your brain's like, oh, I need to be focused on that because there's something really close to me. And that also strains your eyes, you know, strains your brain, but over time, That stresses your brain and your body out and chronic stress leads to anxiety. So something that is really important that people need to do is to get outside and look at a horizon. Like, especially if you're someone that is on your computer and looking at a computer screen all day, looking at something close to you, like I would say like every 90 minutes to look at something far away and I think Andrew Huberman actually posted something recently about this too is to if you can't like look at something outside, look at something greater than 20 feet away from you every at least 90 minutes to do that. For I don't know exactly how long. I think it's like five to ten minutes, not sure. But also I mean I think going outside is the best but looking at the horizon it uh-huh. activates something called panoramic vision. Right. Which Allows you to relax, which is why people get That's like claustrophobia and things like uh-huh. that. Because they don't have the ability to have panoramic vision. So, so you can use uh-huh. panoramic vision to relieve anxiety.
0: That's interesting. So, you know, if someone is, you know, working or doing like in a studying session, just go outside and look into the abyss. Yeah. Uh, should help alleviate anxiety that's interesting I wouldn't have thought of that
1: it's one of my favorite ones because it's Mm -hmm. like exactly it's something that people don't think of but I think it has a huge effect with how we're staring at screens close to our face all day like I think that it has probably a really big effect on our on our mental health true
0: um even even like me looking at this um laptop right now it's pretty close to my face
1: yeah exactly Um, And like I mean, you're not eg- exactly. And I think it's something people don't think about, which mm-hmm. is why I really like that one. And it, it it's so true. Like go outside and look at a horizon and try to be stressed. Mm-hmm. Like it's way harder to be. Um, and then obviously there's also different breathing techniques. I really like diaphragmatic breathing. So like breathing like into your stomach is really it like front activates the phrenic nerve, which will help you calm down doing um physiological size which is like the two inhales followed by a really long exhale so it's like and then you breathe out twice as long as that mm-hmm. took like that will help you relax as well and it's actually that that like other species do that too like if you ever see a dog like lay down to sleep like it'll do that like like it's kind of something right. they do like automatically and it's kind of cool to see that it's like across species so doing that can be really helpful um yeah, those are some things you can do for
0: anxiety. Mm-hmm. And um, I was looking at um, one of your tech talks, and one of them was, you know, kind of talking about how to be more happy. Um, And, you know, I guess happiness is a very um, broad term. Is there kind of my question is, is there like a way or an empirical measure of what constitutes um quote-unquote like happiness or is it more of like a kind of a sense of i guess contentment or just being like content with uh someone Yeah. yeah
1: i will say something that we should be striving for is not necessarily happiness but it's peace um, because life is a roller coaster. Like there are going to be ups and downs. Like there are going to be times when you're not necessarily happy with how things are going, but mm-hmm. having peace is something that you can obtain and hold on to. And something that we all should be doing is having a daily gratitude practice mm-hmm. and stating things that we're grateful for. I kind of started by doing that. Like every morning I would say things I was grateful for. And then as I was falling asleep, now I literally just walk around. Being grateful for everything and like just saying thank you for like literally everything like the air I'm breathing, the or everything, like and just staying grateful and thankful for things mm-hmm. is truly, I think, the key to to happiness. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, because we tend to forget how good we have it. Um, mm-hmm. and if you can just have a gratitude practice, like even down to the fact that you have a microwave, like that's so nice, you know what I mean? Yes, just things like. There's so many things we take for granted. So even on your bad days, you could list five things that you're grateful for.
0: Right. Kind of having a glasses half full approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess. Yeah. Is there any, um, you know, kind of science or studies behind gratitude? Um, there's a quote I've heard that said, gratitude is the attitude. Thought I had to throw it in there. <laughs> yeah,
1: I love, no, gratitude is like one of my favorite things ever. And yeah, there's science behind it. It increases serotonin. And it actually, I'm pretty sure they showed that it makes people live longer. Like there's a study and I wanted to do a video about this on TikTok and that they showed where people that are, have more of an optimistic personality actually live longer than people that are more pessimistic. So practice gratitude and you literally will live longer.
0: (laughs) Can, um, people who are, you know, tend to be quote unquote, pessimistic, you know, can they turn, is that something they can work towards is having a more optimistic, um, and yeah, having a more optimistic approach to life and kind of how they view the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say like having a gratitude practice can change your mindset so much, but then there's also other things like that can also lead to happiness. Like number one, not taking yourself so seriously. I think a lot of people nowadays take life so seriously and we need to remember that it's not that serious. It's really actually yes. not serious. At all. <laughs> we, um, that, and also kind of like making mistakes and seeing like so many problems in the world. I think a really awesome quote that I heard is like, instead of looking at your problems, like problems that you need to, um, like that you need to fix, look at them as challenges that you're going to be like overcoming and finding solutions to, you know, because that's what problems are really, are just opportunities for us to learn and grow and level up because that's what we're here to do as people is to learn and grow. We're not here to say the same. And if you never, are faced if you're never faced with any type of challenge, then you will never have the opportunity to grow.
0: Right. And I think that's such a healthy way of looking at things, even if it's um, you know, yeah, kind of framing a problem into more of a challenge or like a failure, quote unquote a failure is more of a learning
1: experience.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: I don't believe there is no like failing unless you give up. And there is, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think uh-huh. if there's there's such thing as possible, people like to say like toxic positivity and things, but that's not like you're still acknowledging that there is something that you need to take care of. Right. Like you're not yes. like oh, wrong, but instead of being like, oh, like this is a problem that I like need to fix, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, like this is like a challenge that now I get to mm-hmm. like face so that I can learn and grow.
0: Yeah, and I think um, you know, having a growth mindset is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at things of like, hey, um, or I guess dealing with challenges and like, oh, I'll come out of this a better person or um, yes, but that's interesting that the science shows that, you know, having a more optimistic attitude towards life leads to um longevity and overall more years of living.
1: Yeah, I was really really like excited when I saw that study and then well also meditating too meditating Mm -hmm. also increases your lifespan as well
0: how did they kind of do that study was it over the you um course of people's lives on how they
1: um I think with the meditate I'm not sure about the optimistic one that one I will have to check on and I'm going to do a video on it so like the sources will be there and everything but with the meditating one, I actually, I've already done a video on and it has to do with telomere length. Um, One of the signs of aging is that telomeres um, are shortened, which correlates like the shorter telomeres, basically like the older you are biologically and the, you know, you're gonna die. But they actually saw with long-term meditators that their telomeres were longer, which correlates with um, longevity and longer lifespan.
0: Mhm. Mhm. That's awesome. Yeah. Um Yeah, I think um uh, for those who are listening kind of the main takeaways from this episode would be to overall um try to implement some sort of daily uh, meditation practice whether it be 2 minutes or 20 minutes, right? The consistency is what matters more than I guess the length because you could try to do it I guess 30 minutes one day but if you're not being consistent with it then it doesn't help and along with the meditation um, kind of having a gratitude um, practice as well now do you write what a, um what it is you're grateful for like on paper or kind of do you just say it out loud
1: yeah I just say it out loud I do what's called gratitude rampages because um, there, there's something that happens. Like the reason why we get angry about things is because we don't, we never get angry because one thing happened. We get angry because a whole bunch of things are stacked up and then it's like an overflow of emotion. And that's the reason why we're mad. You know, like we never get mad because one little thing happens. We get mad because a whole bunch of things like stack up and it works the same way in the opposite direction. So if you stack up a whole bunch of things that you're grateful for, then it's just like an overflow of positive emotion. So I will do like gratitude rampages where I will just like go on like a whole tangent of like all these things that I'm grateful for and make it as long as possible. And, you know, there are times when I'll like journal that too, but I just find it like I can put more emotion into it and like what I say and feel it if I'm just like saying it out loud.
0: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, I think that this will conclude our episode for um where can people find you at Emily?
1: Yeah, so you can find me on TikTok at M on the Brain and on Instagram at Emily 17 McDonald and also on YouTube at M on the Brain because I'll be starting and I'll be starting a podcast soon as well.
0: That's As awesome.
1: We hit, numbers, we hit the numbers, so I have to do it because that's when I say I am gonna do something. I keep this yes. to myself.
0: So. I'll be um I'm looking forward to whenever you launch your podcast. Yeah. I'll be <laughs> It'll cool. be exciting. It'll be exciting. Um cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on to the Balling Out show. Um, I'm very grateful that you were <laughs> you were able to make this episode happen.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me on. Seriously, this was yes. really fun.
0: Of course.